0: This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs, now let's get into today's show. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Detection at Scale podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, Ty Spano, the chief security and trust officer at CySense. Ty has over 15 years of experience as a security leader and practitioner at companies like Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, Lending Club, Target, and now at CySense.
1: Welcome to the show, Ty. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate you uh, having me today and chatting
0: about all things security. Yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. Before we jump in, would you mind just giving us a quick bio, a little bit about yourself and
1: uh, what you're working on today at TySense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is mostly in application and product security. So I've had the opportunity really to hone in on FinTech, 8 years of my experience has been there, but now that I'm coming up on like 15, 16 years, it's like now it's just half. It's kind of crazy to think about it, but uh, I used to just be focused on financial services because I think people's relationships with money is very important. How you achieve things like FIRE, like financial independence and retiring early is a big core part of my DNA that I figured out when I joined JPMorgan Chase. Uh, And through that, I was able to work for great companies and eventually landed at a smaller publicly traded org and lending club, where having worked at those large places, you understand the business model pretty well. You go to a lending club and they're like really trying to transform relationships with people that have made mistakes. So for me, uh, having done some different trainings, gone out there and done some volunteer work, I want everyone to figure out what is their roadmap, how to have a healthy relationship with money and live the life that they want to. And I think FinTech allows for a lot of that experience. Uh, now, I, I'm more interested and in, in really focused in, on data science and the convergence of security. Uh, so I was able to find this wonderful startup called Periscope Data After Lending Club, and it was head of security. And from my time at Capital One Financial, I was doing a lot of M&A work, mergers and acquisitions, bringing in these startups, seeing the magic. And I'm like, they look like they're having fun. How do I get to have as much fun? And how do I get to do that? Because I would see them come into the company hang around for two to three years, and then they would leave and then go to another startup, build this thing up and kind of run that model again. But they would just have a blast while they did it. And as someone that's worked in these large companies as an executive, you're sitting there like, that seems more fun. Uh, Less constraints, less uh, external consultants, less regulatory requirements, less regulators. And um, that's how I ended up at Periscope Data. So I took all that application product experience and brought it to a Series B startup multi-tenant cloud, Kubernetes, everything. Uh, Just one of the most ideal application security programs, but very unique because it wasn't app-focused. It was more like an overlay into how to talk to databases. So that actually challenged me as a technical leader quite a bit in the conversations, but it was absolutely fun and engaging, uh, even to the point where we drove a transformation of uh, sort of secrets management to pushing to HashiCorp Vault. And then after a year of like grinding through a lot of this fun stuff, uh, we were acquired. By the wonderful company Science. and through that process, I was able to kind of communicate uh, evidence of strategy, and then I took on the global reins as a CISO, uh, and really achieved one of my you know three to five year goals uh, in less than a year after joining Periscope Data. For me, that was kind of mind blowing that I was going to like check another box on this list, and it was so fast. And here we are, two years later, through a pandemic. I've checked more boxes than, than I can even realize of like what it means to be a core part of the organization as a security leader and how do you make it a business differentiator. And I think for startups in this new world of SaaS-oriented services, uh, I've taken away a lot of lessons. I've had a lot of interactions. And yes, my cat is yep, in the background. <laughs> He's right on time. Um, and it's a big part of really Figuring out this model of how do we embed security in the business. And, and I've just loved this experience because all of that app and product security capability uh, that I brought to the table has translated well. And except now it's not just the engineers and technical architects that I'm working with. I'm working with sales leaders. I'm working with general counsel. I'm working with our CEO on a frequent basis. And it's very, very rewarding and exciting when you see the outcomes of what is possible for a data analytics company. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I just want to say first congrats on all the success that you've had in your career so far. It's really exciting to join a, a startup and it have a successful exit like that and for you to sort of become more elevated in the organization as well, I'm sure is a great feeling. And and uh, that experience is also extremely unique, so it sounds like a lot of fun. I think the thing I want to start with first, so I was looking a lot into your background and saw that you know you focused a lot in product and application security, and I want to just start there. So could you just give a quick overview on really what application and product security means and why it's really important to enable businesses to move fast?
1: Yeah, so I think application security, when I started, wasn't really called application security. This whole idea of what is an app or what is a web app uh, was still an unknown. What is, what is an application when you look into a configuration management database of like where you have all of these assets? I can tell you, I still struggle with that question, and I've built multiple, like, four AppSec programs at this point. Uh, my first one was at JPMorgan Chase when static analysis didn't even exist, so what is application security was still a huge question mark. A lot of people used to think it was penetration testing of applications, but that's AppSec. And then I'm like, "Ha! Ah, what if we built an end-to-end dynamic scanning capability using this, you know, commercially available tool? So then we're crawling, we're using personas, and we're automating every quarter for a major release to have results." Is that AppSec? So we started asking these questions, and BSIM didn't exist, OpenSAM didn't exist, there wasn't a lot of maturity frameworks. Uh, as I was rounding out, I think my second year at JP Morgan, BSIM started to emerge. You know, The folks at Sigital were starting to build out this questionnaire-based process, I met some of the early folks like John Stevens, and it was very rewarding to understand that people started to know what AppSec was. Um, I spent two years at Chase. I built out uh, dynamic and static analysis. Uh, and I, you know, I was still figuring it out myself. I don't think there was a real clear vision of what it was. Uh, but I had an inventory. I was a dude that was an SME and something that I was not an SME in before. But having just been there and became this thing, uh, I took that experience and went to Capital One. And I did it over five and a half years where I started a little bit differently. I started with hygiene. Show me where all these assets are. Then I started with risk profiling. Now I have an understanding of what these things are. Now let's do a risk-based approach for services, testing, touch points, control requirements. And then also I'm like, ah, this ninjas program, this thing. Uh, who is it? I think it was like Kyle Randolph. He's the CISO over at Verkata now, but it was one of the 1st BSim conferences he presented on his security ninjas program at Adobe under Brad Arkin. And I'm like, oh, I need to do that. Like I need to train people. Like how do we do that? And it was a piecemeal of all these touchpoints. And I think BSIM did a good job pulling together so many touchpoints. things a little bit outside of it. But for the larger part, application security is like all of these technology-based services on an application tier that your traditional security teams that focused on network security firewalls. They had no idea what any of this communication over these HTTP requests were, especially as AJAX rose, HTML5 rose, uh, mobile apps started to rise like... All of that really changed the game. And I think for me, it was a rapid evolution of how to interact with technical leaders that were building the business, right? It wasn't just like we need an IT server stood up and we're throwing on IIS anymore. It's we're having very captive applications. We have mobile apps that are dropping every two weeks. Uh, We have marketing websites that are flying out the door on things like WordPress. Like, How do we secure all of that? And application security, to me, is an evolving narrative even to this day. Uh, So as someone that's a CISO with that base, I think I bring a little bit different of a flavor to the table than your traditional, like, you know, I did network security for a certain amount of years. I worked for the government for a certain amount of years. But I'm also fortunate enough to be one of the early folks that had a formal degree in information science and technology with the focus on security from Penn State University. I was the third class through. The first two classes, some of them kind of knew what to do. Some of them just ended up in help desk. And that's all they did. Uh, But a lot of folks started to emerge at that timeline of what was security. And then same parallel track, like what is application security? And I think if you're going to choose to do information security, you got to choose one vertical within this whole big picture and be an expert at it. And sometimes it's through luck. Sometimes it's through hard work. Sometimes it's just happenstance. You just don't even realize that you've done it. But getting the experience, building it out and doing it multiple times can't help. But I think it, doing it well once for multiple years will get you to a place of expertise. And I think application security for me is still an amalgamation of that. It's evolving. And while I'd love to put like a simple title on it and it's an app tier a web app and all of these smart, thick and thin clients. Look, IoT is changing the game and what we talk about in application security. Because now we're talking firmware and now we're talking supply chain of hardware. Was that AppSec before? but it's important as part of the discussion now. So I think it's an evolving nature of how we talk about security.
0: Yeah, the thing that you said that I think was super interesting and eye-opening to me was that application security is about collaborating with the people building the business. And I've never thought about it from that perspective before. I always just thought about a team in the greater security team that was really just focused on making sure that the inputs and outputs to the main core application were quote-unquote secure. But it's a really great point to make that like yeah it's collaborating with the people who the product and engineering leaders in the company who are trying to accomplish business objectives so I, I think I have a lot of follow- questions to this obviously but I think the one in my mind is like how do you help enable them as a let's just say you're just an application security practitioner or leader like what are some clever ways that you've helped enable them to continue to move fast to ship product features and, and keep them keep revenue growth up or really whatever is the objective of the businesses.
1: Yeah. Showing up, being present. You know, I think the Agile manifesto is a really big part of my DNA at this point. Uh, I kind of drafted a hacker agile manifesto for security practitioners in my head at one point. I never put it on paper because I felt like it was a little bit too much for me. Uh, I'm I'm a practitioner, right? Like for for me actually doing the work is very very invigorating so when you're talking about how a former team maybe screwed up the crypto practices because there's like eight touch points of how you encrypt something and it's super slow we'll show up and have the conversation and have a logical discussion with the leaders to say okay we've encapsulated it we have transport we're doing it at rest we have this shard that's encrypting it uh, we've double encrypted this shard i'm like why did we do we like why, why, what was the purpose of this well that's how the technology works and you're like Let's eliminate one of these just to see if it'll go faster because I think we have enough. But I think when I look back at my track, it was always about being present. And I can tell you, like in the transformational efforts between Capital One and Target, when you're going from a waterfall or a traditional application development shop where, you know, the engineers get the requirements, the requirements go to the engineers to be building code, and then application security (laughs) gets involved because there's the checkpoint and the questionnaire. Like you're dead. You're dead on the inside and no one's having fun when you talk like that. So for me, it was always about like, how do we engage engineers? Um, And I learned that through JP Morgan because it was like, it's a really big financial institution. It's got a lot of history. Change is very slow and arduous. I think things have changed a little bit uh, since my time there, but I will always reflect on that. When I went to Capital One, it was moving faster. I could physically go find people. Sometimes I would physically fly to another campus or location Uh, Just to literally, Jack, pick up a post-it note, look at the rest of the board and be like, do I take a leaf blower and blow them all down and just leave mine up there for like a statement? Or do I just move it over, wait for their stand up, have a chat, stay afterwards, engage with the PM and the team to say, I know we've not seen eye to eye on fixing this vault, but you got to trust me. It's been a year. Here's the problem. Here's the scenario where it went from a low risk to now probably a medium and high risk. This type of thing could lead to account takeover if we don't fix it here's what that actually means. Here's why that's a problem in the future. I'm like, I know you don't get to engage with fraud analytics in the back end of like the bigger picture of the business, but I want to educate you with this information. And another part was like, sometimes give people books, sometimes just build that relationship. And, and for me, that was always the element that I think stood out is like, I enjoy interacting with folks that are building that business because then I'm learning too. So how how many you know credit cards does it take for us to turn a profit or like, How many times do we have to pick up these records or when do we cart out an ATM after a natural disaster and we have a truck of ATMs to get people cash and currency so life can keep going? Like Those are things that are very, very fascinating when you have that. And when you lead with empathy, not just from your side as a security practitioner, but from a business side of your customers, I think everyone wins because you're trying to give the best service to people that are using what you build. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's been my trick is like, show up, you know, don't sit behind the ivory tower of security. Don't think it's scary to go Mm -hmm. talk to people. If you're dealing with imposter syndrome, you know what, there's no better way than to do it than just to go out there and have the conversation and admit sometimes, you know what, I don't know everything about encryption. I never will, but I have a pretty good concept because I've done these conversations so many times over. But the second we sit and get into like a curve and some of the math, I'm going to go, hang on, I got to go do some more research before I say yes or no. And I think being human on that front and not just being the expert ombudsman security practitioner that says they know everything and they could never be wrong, it'll be in your favor to build those relationships that way. And I think in San Francisco, Jack, I've found just the magic of that. The more I've had those genuine interactions, the more people keep calling me on the next startup that they're at and they're like, Hey, we need a practical security person. I'm like, I would love to, but however I'm doing this thing here until I get it done, we'll be in touch. But I have a friend, I have a friend that may work well uh, given what you're working on there. And it's, it's really cool because I think in fortune one hundreds or fifties, like you don't get those relationships.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right. It's very much mechanical. It's very much you're going through the, consistent process of a very large organization that's super mature and introducing change adjustment is going to take time to whereas these startups you have to rapidly develop these relationships to determine trust determine empathy and determine the mo of each individual to have positive outcomes yeah
0: I love the idea of leading with empathy i think as a founder I always try to keep that as well and one of our values is seek to understand and that comes from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People: seek to understand and then be understood. And I think that applies in this scenario where you, as a security team, are talking with other application or product people, and you know you're just trying to get on the same page and be like, "Hey, this is an important thing." And the seek to understand is kind of bidirectional. It's like you need to understand where they're coming from, their objectives, priorities, etc., and vice versa. And for you as a security person, person to want to. Reduce risk and keep the organization safe while enabling them to still move fast. So that's kind of a good segue into the one of the other things I had on my mind that I want to talk with you about. Because you've worked at really large organizations like Capital One, J.P. Morgan, Target, and then now you've sort of gone into the startup world. The thing I'm really curious about from your perspective, and also now being, a, you know, a C level. Is like how do these practical security programs really differ between the large enterprises and then the really small like growth or
1: early stage startups? Yeah, you know, I think one of the the key takeaways I can always you know hang my hat on is like an example like web app firewalls. I look back at every place that I've worked where we had a, you know. One flavor, or sometimes we had two flavor, two web app firewalls to process traffic that slowed down the website. Like I've seen a lot of weird stuff. And one of the weirdest practices that, that I've found in large enterprises, sometimes you buy these great tools. In fact, you buy a lot of great tools, but you don't tune them. You leave them with default. Sometimes you don't enable them into a reactive or proactive mode. Sometimes it's just in listening mode and you've checked the box. So when you look at things like PCI 6.5 and it's like do code reviews or have a web app firewall, I think it's evolved a lot since then. There's a lot more there. But during my time in financial institutions, that that was kind of the cut. It did not make much sense to me. So I'm like, okay, if everything's going through a static analysis tool, great. We cover that. If everything from our main front-end website is going through a web app firewall, great. We actually double check those boxes. But In contrast, like if I did one or the other, they're not the same control. And at the same time, if I just turned on the web app firewall that is just in listening mode, did I meet the requirement? Oh, that's not real security. So to me, the tangible nature of talking to regulators, playing this game, trying to protect customers without impacting the business, larger organizations, you're trying to have great impact with really low friction. And sometimes the best way to do that is have these verbal wins and big data points, but actually not add a lot of value in playing this game. In startups, Jack, I, I'm sure you know how to manage a budget at this point, but it's like your burn rate is very important. So when you as a security leader and an early stage company say, hey, I need X amount of dollars. I'll, I'll remember the first time I was like, I need 40K to have an incident response retainer. And I'm like, that's my first act. You know, like that's my first ask. That's what I need. And you know what? I'm going to slow roll into the other places. I'm going to try to do my best with native tools to grow with the team and the company. If there's a feature enabled within a product, I'm going to try to use that and just the data somewhere else. But I'm not going to ask you for half a million dollars to roll out a scene. I'm not going to try and push you to say I need these consultants because I can't do the work. Uh, my budget, uh, if I could, I could, I wish I could share the numbers on this because uh, I can't. Uh, but <laughs> At this point, like I look back at my track of how much money did I really spend in the first year of a Series B company compared to my budget with Cicen compared to my budget this year with scicen and year over year it's been a radical growth that again, I mentioned a time machine before, but I don't know if most folks would have the ability to go from basically no money to having a significant budget to you know going from basically two security people to now a team of eight. And I've done the rapid growth, but it's very different when you're in a startup because of that burn rate. So if you overextend or if you have people not adding a lot of value, it's not good for the business. So you have to be in tune with the organization and you have to have your math pretty well right to say how many security engineers do I actually need? How many AppSec specialized security engineers do I need to support these design reviews and work with the teams to build those relationships that I expect at this point? It's not that I want them. I expect them because you know what? Every dollar we waste now intrinsically affects our outcome. And it is a different shared experience as opposed to we're too big to fail. Everyone still gets bonuses. If it's a tough year, maybe merit increases don't happen. But now it's like Look, if we do a really good job, our outcome, our efficiency rate, all of that is worth it. But it's a gamble. And I think this is the part that I, you know, I haven't been through the full full exit yet. But that gamble together and building something together is just such a shared experience that I'm confident from the team I have now, there's at least two people, probably three, I'll give it three, three are ready to be head of security somewhere else based on what we did in this past three years. Uh, I've got one person that could run a whole IT shop at a late-stage company, and they started with me, and they joined from, you know, as an Apple specialist. And they joined in, and they ran all of the Mac endpoints. They built out our AV capability. They understand quarterly access reviews, and, like, they're evolving. And it is fascinating for me on this shared journey that we that we get to go at the end of it together. So when we look at how we spend money on tools, how we go and get the biggest and best, because it's easy versus, hey, we're going to build a vendor due diligence program without spending any money on Google Sheets and a Google site. And it's enough. But when we need to evolve it, we'll move at the right time. So I think that part is a big aspect of kind of late stage or public versus startup.
0: Yeah, I like the intentionality too with what you're saying in the startup. So obviously you have limited people, you have limited dollars and you have to be very, very intentional and thoughtful about where you put it versus having a limited budget to just go buy, you know, spend millions of dollars on technology or consulting and things like that. So I think it actually forces you as a security leader to kind of go back to first principles of like what's actually important? What do we really care about? And how can we run like a lean and mean security team versus being in a situation where you do have a lot of tools They're all kind of turned on, kind of working, kind of throwing some helpful signal, some maybe unhelpful signal. I kind of prefer the startup world, to be honest, where you are a little constrained. I think it forces you to get more creative. But you also made me think of another scenario where uh, startups can kind of fall into a trap where they build too much because they don't want to spend the money. And then that ends up, over time, actually costing them more. So I'm curious on your perspective of this topic of buying versus building especially for security tooling and
1: how you generally make the decision, oh, we're going we're gonna to actually build this versus buy it? It depends on how special the idea is. If there's someone on my team that starts building something and they're inspired to go and create a lot of automation or they're working with an early stage startup that we're influencing their backlog and also influencing how their API comes along, uh, there's only so much I want them to do, especially if like, I see it in them as an individual to be like, maybe you can be a founder. Maybe you can do this, and so I'm like, maybe don't do all this work just yet. Maybe take some inspiration. But as a as a late stage, so we went from a Series B to a late stage, um, and it's I've had to apply a different lens, and the lens that I apply now is cool. We're we're later. Not all of us are going to be here for you know whatever this journey is past four years once we're fully vested, or if there's no incentive model, or if we're just not happy anymore because it's changed drastically. It has from a Series B to now that's a reality that you have to bake in. And I think in larger organizations, it's not the same. So for me, when I was in larger orgs, I would optimize a process. And once I had it optimized, I would start to outsource. Uh, So I would have like a code review factory model uh, where all of our tools, our setups, our first three scans for static analysis would go through our team. Everything else after that, run rate, outsource it, pay a certain dollar amount, get it to the most efficient way possible, keep the dollars down. I'm pretty good at that. When it comes to startup land, I have that in my mind in a few more years. But before that, now I'm thinking the build versus buy. Because if we overextend on the build, it's not just about them being able to do their own startup, but it's more who's going to maintain it. Um, In my previous org, uh, prior to joining here, we had some great engineers. But the problem is once they left, keys stopped working, uh, reports stopped running. No one knew how to read the code. There were no good comments. No one ever did a plus one on their code because they were like the only one working on that feature. You started to see the breakdown because security teams aren't full-fledged engineering teams. So when you think of like, uh, you know, the, the pizza party size of a team, not all security teams can afford that. It's not five plus or minus two, you know. And I think that that is an interesting aspect when you have one to two security engineers building tools and the market is hot, And tell me a time when the security market wasn't hot. At this point in my career, it's been 10 years of hotness. (laughs) In my early stage, there was not a lot of money, a lot of things. But now, it just doesn't stop. So your incentive model of what you're building, how you're building it, um, it really depends on the individual too. So I think leading with empathy heals like really important. But I look at it as sustainability. Are you digging yourself a grave and then you have to maintain that tool? Or are we at a stage where let's go find best in breed We can afford it let's make this switch in the transition but what i really like about startup land i find great startups jack um kind of like yours that that if i can partner with them it typically pre-series a right like if if i can have a good healthy conversation either through an introduction or a friend says hey talk to these folks they're doing something cool and i can help incubate in my own shop and there's no conflict of interest like that has led to a lot of great outcomes for our team. Yes, we're not spending a ton of money, but we're also getting a very customized solution for us. Can't always do that in the big late stage or the big publicly traded organization because something will get in the way. For right. this, I've been able to do it multiple times, uh, even with some of the companies I advise that have led to really great outcomes for my team. Otherwise, we're doing a ton of manual work that you know maybe a tool works for us and maybe it doesn't. So I think that's the piece that I look at is like, it's multifaceted of like, one, is it going to be good for them as an individual uh, to build this thing? Two, can we even afford it if we were to buy something? But three, like, let's get, let's get crafty. you know, Let's get frugal uh, because there's a way to win with multiple players too. Because if we can do a case study with someone, if we can do some marketing with someone and we get value for two to three years out of a solution that would have taken us... You know, probably 120 hours to build and then probably 20 hours per month to maintain. Like, it's totally worth it to go into that spectrum of maybe not a full buy, but maybe a discounted buy. So, I think that's the other part that's kind of cool for me is like having been involved with some of those startups that have allowed us to progress our security posture because we had an early engagement with them.
0: It's really interesting because it's similar to the idea of. Almost consulting to a point right you're you're basically doing free consulting or you're getting free consulting rather to where the startup is building a product, but they have a dedicated team of engineers who literally do like eat, breathe and sleep like this product so it is very advantageous for you as a security leader to want to work with them and if they're a good team and they build a good product and they're receptive and empathetic, then it's pretty much all positive and Because startups are early in their journey, they need to build the trust in the market. You're likely to get a better deal as well. So it's cheaper from an engineer's perspective. Like, you don't have to hire that person because hiring is so non trivial, especially finding security people who have engineering experience. That is so rare, right? That's the intersection of so many different um, specialties. So, like, that's actually my background. Like, I started in security, I've done DevOps, I've done uh, software engineering, I've done like AWS infrastructure and all these different things, but it's very difficult to find. So yeah, I think it's smart to partner with startups, especially like the more emerging ones that are getting funding and are growing and are being successful because it's really very mutually beneficial. But um, as you you can likely understand, those large enterprises probably have a harder time really trusting because they want to just check the box and they don't want to take the risk. But that is something that is uh, really just... Representative of what an early adopter is right if you think about like the chasm uh, an early adopter are the people who are willing to take the risk because it's going to get them far further ahead than just buying the status quo and being okay with all the problems that it has as you scale up so that's kind of a good segue into the the next thing I want to talk about which is like when you're building these early security teams either in a startup or really just in a growth or mid- market type of organization like what are some good patterns that you really feel are important to get established in the beginning to when they are that big enterprise, they'll
1: be happy that they have. Yeah. So I think one of the big elements that's been a lesson learned for me is trust and enablement. Um, So sales enablement is a big part of what we have to do. Publicly traded orgs, I don't think I had to be involved with the product as much. But I was always a consumer of the product. Like Lending Club, I was an investor on their platform before I worked for them. Uh, Just all kind of happened to work out. Target, like who hasn't been inside of a Target at this point if you live in America? Uh, Capital One, I've used nearly every product, uh, minus some of the key markets. Um, And then JP Morgan, I was just, you know, I used some of their products. And then prior to that, I was a consultant and I never took, you know, I never paid for consulting there, but obviously a consumer later. But when I think about it, you should, like as a security practitioner, like if you're going to work in a company, you want to know what the product does, right? And how it works. And then also, what do the customers need? So, the reason I mentioned trust and sales enablement, I injected that into my title as well. I'm not a CISO, I'm a chief security and trust officer. Uh, You know, I looked out into the field and thought, like, what would make sense? Because if it's just a CISO and protecting our data and customer data, that's one thing, but it's not. Prior to my time, there was no real sales enablement. I learned this at a Series B. I honed it in. I dialed it in. How do we answer RFPs? How do we do questionnaires and due diligence from companies that are trying to use our product? How do we even have a conversation with customers when they're like, how am I going to trust you with my data in your cloud environment, especially if it's multi-tenant? And then I have to explain all the encryption. I have to explain how we do our own security program. I also can show them security certifications that I've been pushing the company to get, uh, but also led us through. And now I've hired some people that help me do that. And I don't have to do all that frontline work anymore. But a big part, understanding like how and what we're selling and then what are the concerns? What are the requirements from the customers? Because if you're getting those requirements three stages too late to build your program and all of a sudden it's like, hey guys, we need to be FedRAMP certified because we're going to just sell the government markets now. And you're a security person like, um, when, when was I going to be informed of that? They're like, we're letting you know now. That's, that's, that's what we're doing. Imagine how you would feel and sitting. I've been building this for a B2B for small to medium businesses. And now I'm not connected with the business intent, the expectation, and now the mm-hmm. customer base has radically changed. Now those questionnaires are you know, 5,000 questions. And now there are, you know, things that you have to do for a government entity that maybe you can't support. Because if it's the US government, only US citizens can certainly fill out some of these questionnaires. You can't have folks on like a green card or an H 1B. And it's it's interesting to have that lesson and experience, but also at the same time, knowing that if you have to evolve six, 12 months in advance, what are those conversations? And one of my active dialogues is healthcare, HIPAA. You know, like for a certain set for Periscope data, we had HIPAA. It made it pretty easy. We had multi-tenancy. Trust me, I I sweat a lot when it's multi-tenant. But I also know the the architecture. I know per pod, this is how it breaks down. I know for like caching and warehousing and databasing, like if we offer that service to them, this is how it's going to work and stay secure. For current state for my team, like in our cloud service offering for SciSense, we don't have HIPAA. And that's been a conversation of, okay, if we migrate these people, uh, these healthcare customers, can they use this? Well, it depends. And that's a long conversation that as a security person, I need to be read in on to understand where are we going as a business? Is this in our intent? Because I have to grow our compliance framework. But at the same time, have the narrative to be able to talk to customers because I want to know how they're going to feel about these changes. And if I can stay ahead of that 6-12 months in advance and have these conversations... Uh, I'm confident in the outcomes. But if I get blindsided as the security leader that's trying to stay in tune, we're all going to have a really painful time when literally if someone says FedRAMP to me, I have a plan. I show it off quite often. But it's very expensive. It's time consuming. And there's a whole other arm of people that I'd need to hire to make that work because some of my folks can't do that work. And it's good to know that the executive leadership team understands this and also understands that sometimes we can sell to government entities through certain means. It's just a matter of what does it mean for the organization if we change our agenda. So I think the sales enablement and trust piece has been huge for me.
0: And do you generally convey those things to your managers and ICs under you in the security org? For sure.
1: Um, I, I, I talk a lot. Uh, I'll just say that. Like, and I try to talk with points. I, talk with experience and then talk with purpose and that's the most important part like i'm not just running my mouth for my team to hear me talk about like stuff that happened in my day it's more here's what's going on with the business here's the perspective of this new leader here's where our new SVP Gilad Katz he's uh, coming over from Ask Flyer you know a few months back how he's going to be transforming R&D and like here's why it's good for us here's the next phase here's the next adjustment here's how we're isolating our projects to focus here here's how we get 15% Every release now for security, because we've been in these conversations versus we have to go negotiate, we have to follow through. Now we just have a guaranteed chunk for health and hygiene. Great. So I think that piece is empowering to the team to also know, because if they're just working off the MO of just running security services or operations, it's not as highly visible. And and one of the pieces of feedback I get from my team that they're appreciative of is transparency. So if I have information, someone's leaving, someone's joining, we're making an adjustment. Sales didn't do so well. Sales did phenomenal. As early as I can get them information within an authorization, I share it. But I also share sometimes too much. I share to the point of like, here's where I'm frustrated. Here's what's going on. Maybe I got one year left of me if we keep this up. Or you know what? I'm seeing this thing through. Like I'm very open with my team. And in turn, Jack, here's the crazy part. Sometimes they tell me when they're going and interviewing somewhere else. And I'm like, oh God, I hope it doesn't work out. But at the same time, like, if it does and it was meant to be, and you get a great offer and it's an opportunity that it's the next phase of your journey that makes a hell of a lot of sense. I'm so supportive, but I also say, don't accept the first offer. Let me help you with the second <laughs> offer that they're going to make to you. Um, and I've done that and it, it's it's weird, but you know what? I, I think that's something I appreciate. That's something I want. And that's something I want to express comfort in because the reality is just because you're a manager and a leader doesn't mean you have people that are going to always follow you. They have to be able to grow and develop into their next phase too. And if you can be there for it, you can help show how a healthy transition works and you can showcase relationship management for the future of people in our community. I think that's really important. So for, for me, that, that transparency has helped a lot too. Yeah,
0: I think that's such a healthy approach to dealing with managing to be honest both the transparency like the radical transparency side the supporting people no matter what like listening to them helping them and helping them grow i think all of that's really important just to make sure that people are happy and understand their purpose and their why
1: so i i totally agree yeah. with all that jack i sweat bullets though i'm not gonna lie when they tell me like hey i'm thinking about a new job and then i go and calculate I'm like All right. Of all the things that they built, here's what's going to break. Here's what I'm going to have to figure out how to support. But like, how do you, how do you look at that? Like as a founder, you know, people are there for certain parts of the journey. Like when you step back, because you you have to accept that reality. But as a founder, like overseeing all these operations, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you lead through that? Especially if you lose like a really good leader?
0: I think it's just addressing the loss and, and giving a plan of how you're going to move forward and then executing and following up. I mean, that's all you can really do, right? I mean, I think losing someone is one of those scenarios, but like losing a customer, for example, is the same type of feeling. You're just like, oh my God, what are we going to do? But really, the only thing you can do is like what I was just saying, just have a plan, be confident about the plan, be optimistic, communicate it and move forward and make sure we all know what we're doing. And I think, I think whenever there's a lot of uncertainty, that generally brings a lot of stress into, into your team just in general. And the more you can do as a founder, as a leader to re- reduce the uncertainty, especially in security too, it's the same thing. Like if you get breached or something, like when you get breached you need to answer a lot of questions. It's the same thing in, in leadership. You know, You need to just give everyone a sense of like, you're handling it and this is what we're doing and this is the direction, we'll be fine. You know there's always going to be things that go wrong. It's not really a matter of of if, it's when. And one of my favorite sort of like life concepts that I follow is like life is a balance between chaos and order. And I think when you rationalize everything that way, it becomes a lot easier to cope with when things go bad. So that's my mentality around it. Also, specifically in the startup, I always think about the uh, Mark Andreessen quote from Hard Thing about Hard Things, where he's like, You only ever feel two things in a startup, extreme euphoria and extreme terror. And I think it's so true. And that kind of goes back to that balance between chaos and order. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, you'll have these great tangible wins and then, you know, something will happen that kind of knocks you down and you're just like, okay, now what do we do? So it's just, it's just that constant battle back and forth. And as a leader, just accepting that it will always happen and being ready for it mentally, I think is the, the most important piece. Um,
1: I have the utmost confidence in you and I'm sure your team does too. because <laughs> I think it's such a well-grounded answer. Um, ha- having a plan. I mean, that that's such a core aspect. And even if you don't have a plan following a framework or an approach and a conversation in a, not really a methodical way, but in a calm way, right? Because I think it's easy to get frazzled and it's the leaders that get too anxious or stressed about the uncertainty because we talked about it, maybe um, we didn't name it, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, the need to feel safe and certainty is a big part of that right. safeness and in startup realms you don't get that all the time and then sometimes it's like oh our biggest customer that's been around for the longest time is about to churn how do we save this you know and like that that conversation of like what if it's a security scan that they're really pissed off about or what if it's you know they found this vulnerability that we haven't fixed for x amount of time uh, and it was communicated and it slipped through the cracks or those scenarios for me, uh, I think, are, are places to shine because you show up just kind of the way you just did and say, "Okay, tell me about the problem. Here's the plan. Let's go communicate it. Yeah, here's how we're going to talk about it. That's all yeah. you can do."
0: And um, a lot of the time, you know, we're we're learning these things for the first time, so I think it's I think empathy is super important on both sides, but also just confidence and communication is really the best thing you can do. I mean, there's always going to be things that there's always going to be mistakes that are made. There's always going to be, you know, something that happened that we didn't plan for. So I, I really just go back to like, okay, well, where are we? What can we do? Let's do it and let's get past it. And then the thing that we were talking about before we hit record on this was around uh, like micromanagement and trust and how important that is as a leader, especially as you grow a company or or a team or really anything. And just trusting that, you know, your your people will do the right thing and helping them. With decisions and, and helping giving them the right guidance to, to make those decisions and to enable them to run fast. Kind of similar to the theme of this whole talk that we've been really saying is just around empathy as it relates to like supporting your business as a security leader or supporting your team as a security leader. And like empathy really comes back to it a lot. So, um, well, cool. So, I want to wrap up with a couple final notes. So, the concept of this podcast is all about detection at scale and I think we've talked a lot of, about a lot of things today that are really around like what are some good practices that we need to instill in a security team early on and how should we think about enabling security as the business grows and scales. The thing I, I was curious about your perspective on is like the relationship between an application security function and a incident response function and how you think they should play nicely together or, or how they should collaborate well together.
1: I've learned the hard way. Um, In in the early phases of my career, it was like, hand over the pen test results and open findings and all the issues and just be ready to answer any question and hypothesis that may come up. I've changed. um, And I've changed because application security has changed, especially with more cloud security related work. Uh, I think the definition of an app is very different. So... Cloud security posture management or attack surface management really comes into play now. So does vault management of how they can pivot in the environment and get access to, say, an application to attack it. So I don't think it's as plain vanilla for me anymore. I believe that now application security engineers and AppSec leaders have a unique opportunity to be involved with the entire incident response lifecycle, good, bad, and the other, you can talk about the perspective of what is the app doing? What are these abuse cases? What have you done in the past? But if there's an exploit that's happening and say, you know, a terabyte of data is getting moved out of your environment and it gets caught in like a firewall log. Look, sometimes it's great to pull in that AppSec person to have that discussion very early on. But what's even better is if they also have an alert that lets them know something funky is happening and they can work with your network security side or your SecOps side. Um, the model I have currently right now with my team, and I think, you know, Orin Ben Shalom out of Israel, who's leading our function for SecOps, and Aaron Brown, who's been building out a lot of great attack surface capabilities in my team, is we're building a lot of those alerts into, you know, alerting tools like Ops Genie, which give us better visibility and reaction time. So no longer is my AppSec engineer always reviewing every alert, they're now empowering another team. So when the IR process kicks off, Look, they can, they can wake up too if they need to. But at the same time, like the team has access, they have information, they have visibility. But we also centralize a lot of our process. So when it comes to teamwork, all of our work is in JIRA. All of our stories, all of our tasks, all of our security reviews, everything that we do will allow for someone on the SecOps side to translate that very quickly. So I think the application security person's job is how well can I translate and communicate what does our product do? Here's the hygiene of it. Like here's the, the profile. Here's the data that we believe. Here are the architecture diagrams. So the distillation and the ability to understand the magnitude of impact or what is the blast radius, that assessment could be done a lot faster. But if you work together, and I think that's really critical. And I, you know, I look back at like Steve Jobs' quote: like, if you want to go quick, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think as an appsec team, like you can help that team go further and more intelligently. I love, I love that quote. I actually didn't know that one before. I'm gonna definitely take uh, take that one with me. <laughs> but That's a great. It, it, it sticks with me. Like, and, and as someone that started in consulting, um, it was always an army of one. And then it was until like Brian Orme, Sidney Klein, and Capital One. They showed me the power of teamwork. And I'm like, oh crap! If you have a vision and you can communicate it effectively, other people will help you build it, and then you're doing it together. And now I see it more and more with like people like you as founders. Um so it's a concept that that was lost on me as an individual contributor, but as a manager i'm really I think I'm finding that more and more. like how far you can go as a team is very important. Yeah, and the impact you have as a leader is essentially
0: a force multiplier at that point because you're not individually contributing anymore. you are giving people guidance and skills or you're giving them advice on on how to really go far, and you're scaling yourself out that way so. Well, cool. So, just to wrap things up for today, uh, I've also really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's been really insightful, really unique. Um, really, for everyone listening in, I mean, the thing that I want to end on is tie in your opinion. Like to really succeed at effective detection and/or you know security at scale in the future, what are three pieces of actionable advice you would give security teams listening in?
1: Yeah, I think just kind of reflecting on this conversation, I'll end it thematically based on the topics that we we kind of hit on. I think leading with empathy is number one, um, having an understanding of your customers or understanding of your engineers, and then putting that into your work. Um, the second one I would say is be selfless, right? So if if you're building programs and functions to protect your job, you're doing it wrong. I, I think I've I've had this mentality since I was an IC in consulting. Build yourself automation, build yourself out of a job, empower other people to do do that job because that will lead you to better experiences as opposed to you get really good at making that widget or let me say this, you get really good at penetration testing and you just keep doing it over and over and you find the same bugs because you're great at finding a specific bug. Wonderful, I'm happy for you. But here's the thing, you can totally go the researcher route, you can go the, the pen tester route and there's a lot of depth that you can go but imagine a world where you can automate a lot of that work for yourself, and you get to focus on more challenging and unique problems. Your perspective, your horizon grows. So that would be my second thing. Uh, the third thing, you know find, find those leaders and mentors that, that are really going to help you, and I think even if they're spot mentors where it's just interactions like this, like Jack, I'll, I'll be reaching out to you in the future. like I really like your style, I love your perspective, I love what you guys are doing at your company. I think when you have strong people around you, you, you are elevated as part of it because you get to have that insight. And sometimes even the work that you're doing when you don't have a chance to step back. And for me, this is a big part of the joy of jumping on chats and interviews like this. I have a lot of time to do introspection as I'm talking here. And then by unpacking, I'm able to like extrapolate some of the unique, serious experiences because when you're just working and you're in it, you don't pop up from the foxhole thinking like, oh, everything's all clear. We're good. And like, let me just sit back and relax and reflect. But in these moments where you're asked a really unique question, you can just start talking and unpack it. And, and I think that's, that's the other piece I would kind of land with. Awesome.
0: Well, Ty, thank you so much for the time. It was a pleasure meeting you and, and chatting with you. And uh, hopefully we can uh, talk again pretty soon.
1: Maybe in person one day,
0: Jack. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks, see you again next time.